Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models episode 160. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, pleased to be joined by someone I'm a big fan of, Sarah McMahon. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I am also doing good. It's starting to get preposterously cold over here in Vancouver, BC, Canada. I don't know what's going on, but it's <laughs> According to my phone, it is going to hit like negative 16 or negative 18 degrees Celsius over here, which is unheard of for Vancouver. But we we will see. That seems pretty freaking cold. So I'm anyway. Yeah, that's disastrous. <laughs> <laughs> that's, like, that's a crisis for me. Yeah, that that is pretty chilly here. I don't think it's ever gotten that cold in my life. So we will see. But on the other hand, we might have a white Christmas. So that could be that could be fun for sure. The kid's going to love it. So, Sarah, with that said, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that most of our listeners know exactly who you are. But just for consistency's sake, do you want to go ahead and just give yourself a quick introduction? Yeah, I am. Um, I started out in wrestling when I was 14. And I wrestled all the way through the 2004 Olympics and I earned a silver medal. And now I've been, for the past 12 and a half years, I've been doing mixed martial arts and I fight in the UFC. I was a former title contender and still actively competing, even though I'm 41. So it's definitely challenging. Um, and I also have picked up more of my jiu-jitsu. And so I'm just recently promoted to brown belt. So we'll see how this year goes competing in gi and no gi at a brown belt. Oh, I didn't realize that you were doing gi as well. I would have assumed, I guess, just given your background, that you would have been more of a no-gi person. So I I do obviously love no-gi, but man, there's something about training in the gi and competing in the gi. Like it's it's just really exciting for me. I think it's just uh, the new challenges, but also it's like an advantage that I have never had before being able to like, I'm a, I'm someone who likes to control a lot. And so human handles are, they only work so well as everybody knows in no gi and wrestling. And so when I can really lock someone down and limit their athleticism, I like it. I like clothes grabbing. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I like it yeah. more than I dislike them grabbing my clothes. <laughs> well, that is understandable. Yeah. This is something that you know, I've been trying to figure out because I personally prefer the gi. I've been training. I do almost all of my training in the gi these days. And I'm not even entirely sure why I like it so much, but if I had to guess, I think part of it is because there's just something exciting about it because you're always in danger. You know, like you said, when people can grab your clothes, especially if they're trained in jujitsu, they can control you easily. They can set up bizarre and unusual submissions from all over the place. It feels like there's just, there's never a break. You're always in danger and you've got to have really, really foolproof defense. And I don't know. I just find that kind of exciting and interesting. As a result, I've always been primarily a gi person, but yeah, I think that's cool. I had no idea that you were going to go out and compete in the gi. Well, I mean, I'm going to definitely do it and I'll, I'll start probably at the, the smaller tournaments just to get a little more experience because like I'm kind of diving in the deep end against people who've done gi throughout white, blue, purple, and brown. So I'm like, all right, here we go. But then I can't really even say that about myself because it's like, are you really diving in the deep end if you've had, you know, 15 years of wrestling? Like, <laughs> I, mean, I just, so. I can imagine the look on some poor schmuck's face. You know, they roll into like a local tournament and they look in their bracket and there's like a UFC fighter slash Olympic medalist in their division. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually like so tricky too. Cause like at the beginning, I'm like, obviously the, the first time I put on a gi was 2000, I think it was 2015 or 16. 
It was like the end of 2015, the beginning of 2016. So obviously I'm wearing a white belt, but man, I got some really, really upset looks (laughs) because, (laughs) but I was like, man, I'm not, I'm not sandbagging. I don't know how to do stuff in the gi. And yes, I have grappled a long time, but it, it's, I don't give myself a belt. So (laughs) 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 like you're talking to the wrong person, but it is, it's, it's true that like I, I come with a wealth of experience, but you know, there's, there's very gi specific things. And so I have my, my game plans of trying to execute the stuff that I want, but you know, a person who knows really good judo is obviously going to do really, really well against a wrestler in the gi. Well, that's a good segue. I mean, I was thinking that what we could talk about today is one of the more frequently requested topics that that we get, which is wrestling for Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'd love to dig into this with you. And this is an area that, I mean, I'm not a wrestler by trade, so I, of course, have some wrestling knowledge I've picked up from osmosis just by training jujitsu. There is, of course, an overlap, but there's also a lot of differences. And I'd love to explore this with you. And I think what you brought up is as good a place as any to start, which is what does the gi do to your wrestling game? I mean, I would argue that when we're talking about Brazilian jiu-jitsu, when you're on the ground with someone, the gi makes a difference for sure. It makes a big difference. But when you're standing up with someone the gi seems to make just a like it's a completely different world if you're wearing the gi versus no gi because the entire stand-up game changes at that rate i'd love to get your perspective on this in terms of how you've had to alter and tailor your game when you put on the gi what's worked for you and what hasn't worked based on the background that you have so for me i'm not really like i i try the moves that we're taught in when we're doing stand-up in the gi but really, the thing that I've found that I've done the best with is trying to take my natural wrestling game that I have like honed over so many years. And I, I brought that also to MMA, but taking my best things, bringing them to the other sport, but just using that sport to do it even better. So my single leg was good in wrestling. But if I, in MMA, if I punch you in the face first, it, that setup is way better. <laughs> like if I could have punched people in the face before, I would have gotten so many more single legs because it's just a, it's a really strong thread, better than a collar tie. And so in the gi, like I try to grab grips that look like something else to a jiu-jitsu person that might signal to them I might be trying a trip or a throw or just trying to control them to pull guard or something else. And then I use that to my wrestling advantage. So and I always like attack very fast. So I just try to give them very little time for them to establish their grips, for us to get into that battle, for us to have to break it, for them to pull me more upright, like things like that. Like I try to get what I want and then strike fast. Well, that's a great thing to discuss here in terms of just cultural differences, because I think the one thing that, I mean, I don't want to say it's a universal thing about jujitsu, but something that I would say is kind of culturally ingrained in jujitsu is this idea that you don't have to be just aggressively driving and pushing the pace all the time. You can sit on your butt and let the fight come to you, but that can be a real limitation, especially against an opponent who's good. Whereas I feel like in wrestling, there is much more of a, a natural culture of trying to dictate the pace and control the fight. I see a lot of people who will send me footage of themselves sparring and they'll say, Steve, what am I doing wrong? How can I improve? And my number one piece of feedback is, well, you just sat on the ground and on your butt and you waited for your opponent to come to you. You basically seeded the tempo of the fight to your opponent and let them just dictate the pace and do whatever they want. And I feel like that's something that we miss in jujitsu that maybe we would be better suited off adapting from arts like wrestling. I'd just love to get your perspective on whether you agree with that or whether I'm out to lunch. No, no. And so I think that you can find that style in in every sport. Because even in wrestling, while the rules force us to engage. So it's not like wrestlers are so much more aggressive. We would be lazy if we could, you know? <laughs> so, but the rules say if, if I, I'm not allowed to keep taking steps backwards, I'll get called for stalling. I'm right. not allowed to keep disengaging. I'm fleeing the hold. Like I'll start to lose points if I don't engage and wrestle. So with jujitsu, there's less penalty if you back up. If there were less penalty in wrestling, you would see a lot of similar stuff, but they do force more engagement, just like in judo, where you are not allowed to be in a low stance, because that does really prevent a lot of throws, um, makes it definitely more difficult. So they force some of the engagement and force like some of the opportunities. And that's what 
that's what creates wrestlers wrestling this style. And we train that style because we know, and we just can't keep giving up points over and over. We're going to get disqualified and we'll just lose the match. So, but I see there are people in jujitsu who I admire and they, they're guard pullers and they pull guard and they, man, you are in the air. They will sub you. They will sweep you. Like they pull to attacks. And, And I like that. They pull to where they want to be and they're immediately going to work. So I think it's it's not always jujitsu style or wrestling style. I think it's a personal style of whether someone is more defensive and more offensive. And I really love a very strong defense. I think that to win championships, you can't have that back and forth, you know, constantly scoring on each other. You really have to be able to shut somebody down well. Like you were telling that person, man, you let them dictate the pace. Because I think that when you're mostly defensive, you're always one step behind their moves. You know, like they're the one that is pushing the pace. They're the one, like you might feel they're going one direction and they might trick you and go the other direction. Well, you're always playing catch up. So I think like a good mix of your offense and defense, knowing when to to be more defensive and when to be more offensive, when it's strategically smart in a match is a good thing. So people... I put people in situations. I'm like, okay, you guys are down. So they have to be offensive. They don't have a choice. Otherwise you sit there and lose. But getting people more comfortable with that and putting them on a shorter time limit, they can't mess around. They have to get after it. And once they do that so many times, they just start to have confidence and believe in themselves. Like it comes time for them to pick up and go and they can pick up and go because they've, they're not, it's not always free rolling. There's a clear set of, you know, rules at stake in those situational goes. Nice. Well, that, that sounds like a really good coaching technique where you basically create a an environmental constraint, honestly, where you tell people, okay, this is not a regular role. You're down on points. You got two minutes. Go for it. <laughs> right. My brother does stuff like that too. We can do that to ourselves. We don't mm-hmm. have to wait for the coaches to put us in these situations. If you know that you need to work on something, like if I was, when I was at the Olympic training center, We had girls that were like the number two girl, number three girl and whatever, like, and I had to go live goes with them. And I had specific things that I wanted to work to, because I knew I was going to compete against them for the biggest things in my career. Now, if we had some of the younger girls come in, like a college girl who I was, you know, like I could beat pretty handily, then I'd set different parameters on myself. I'm like, okay, you have to get eight takedowns in this go. Like, and it just made me push the pace. It made me, I approached it a different way. I didn't wrestle everybody the same. And so I think that people would benefit if they took the areas that they really didn't like, the areas they're really struggling on, and they mentally put themselves over and over in that spot. They don't wait for your coach to recognize that you have a problem and them to come up with a solution. We're all intelligent people. We know, you know, a lot of times we know our biggest areas that we're getting beat. We may not always know exact how to solve it, but we know where it is. And so we can put ourselves there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's a, an important designation too. just this idea that you can tailor and control your training. Something that people always say, especially when I'm sparring with newer people, is they say, oh, Steve, you know, I, I'm just a white belt and I feel bad that you're wasting your time training with me. You should be training with more experienced people. And that's that's kind of nonsense. I mean, I get something out of training with everybody. It's on me to make that time useful to myself. If I'm training with someone who has equal or greater experience than myself, then I'm probably going to be inclined to play my A game. But if I'm fighting a white belt, then I'm going to set constraints on myself to make that role interesting for me, useful for the opponent, and to give me some breathing room to try things I wouldn't normally do. So a favorite thing that I do when I'm sparring with a white belt is I will mentally decide just not to play my A game. So if I want to go to single leg X, if that's my go-to, I will just say to myself, I am not going to use that position today. I'm going to force myself to try things that I normally wouldn't try, which makes the match much more competitive and much more interesting for everyone involved. So you can always get value out of a role. It doesn't really matter what the experience level is. I'm interested to hear because it sounds like you kind of have a similar thing on your side where you're training with people who are obviously much less experienced than you a lot of the time. Any particular practice? Or, or habits that you use, anything especially that comes from the world of wrestling that jujitsu people might not know about that we could use to improve the training environment and make things more productive for everyone? So I think that what I like to do when it comes to training with like white belts or blue belts is I'll put myself in bad situations. And 
the better you get, the less you get in a lot of bad situations. So you end up becoming really good at like not getting your guard passed, but you just don't get in as many situations where your guard is passed or somebody has like, has your back or has like mount. So through, you know, natural training of having better defenses, you end up in an area that's very important that you stay, you know, like it's really important to get out of mount and remember how to get out of mount during live when it's not like just the technical drills. It's like really tough scrambles and they don't move the way you want to and you're tired and have to explode. So like, I think that some of the small, the younger belts are great for that, especially because what they lack in technique, they make up for in awkward movements and a lot of strength, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? And if you have someone on your back with a lot of strength and that's what they're using, man, that is tough. I don't care. It's a, it's such a dominant position that you could take a, a white belt that's only been training for six months and you're just going to, you're going to have some trouble getting them off your back. And so yeah, it's good. Like it's sometimes good to go. I like training like this with when I'm getting ready for a fight. I'll just be in someone's guard and I'll have them just hold me really tight. Like, cause that's what a lot of the, the younger belts do. They're, they're going to keep the closer distance and start to set up their submissions. But I have to hand fight while I'm in their guard. And that's just really, really tough. I use that also for training. If I'm like, I put people in really good positions because let's say you're in an IBJJF match and somebody else scores an advantage or they score two points on you. They're not going to do anything the rest of the fight. You know, if it's, yeah. if there's like a minute left, you have a minute against their best tight defense, you know, and you have to find a way. And so I'll put people and I'll think about those situations. I, I use that, but I also learned with white belts too. That's where I learned how to flow roll better. Whereas you're right. I bring my A game, but I also bring my A physicality because I train a lot more with guys than I do with girls. So I'm always using my strength and athleticism, but with white belts, I don't really use it as much. So I have to know the full sequence of things so I can give them the right reactions. So they react right. So I can do the next chain along, you know, so I learned how to flow roll so much better with younger people than I did with the veterans, because it seems like with veterans, you, before you can get anything generated, everybody knows what everybody's going to do. So they shut it down quickly, you know, so you're, you're cycling through a Rolodex of moves. You don't really get to go through the full chain. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you bring that up because this is one of the reasons why I love, at least in pre-pandemic times, why I love traveling around and dropping in at other people's gyms is because you're constantly exposed to people who have they have no idea what your game is and you have no idea what their game is. You've never felt it. So everything is a new and novel surprise. Whereas when you're at home base and you're training with, you know, you're training with Bob every single day, he knows all of your moves inside and out. So he knows exactly what you're going to do and just doesn't let you do it. And it can kind of result in a sort of a stale role. You can get into sort of a routine and a habit. And that's one of my favorite things about the the traveling and the community aspect of jujitsu is just you get to go around and other people get to pressure test your game in ways that you're not used to. It's crazy how much variety there is in jujitsu. I mean, you can have a bunch of people who are all supposedly equivalently skilled black belts and their games might look completely different in terms of what they do. It's a, a very, very unique sport in that way, just in terms of the variability that everyone can use to custom tailor their, their individual game. Yeah, that is something that is like super surprising. And it's the same thing with MMA and with wrestling. Like wrestling, I know it looks like a lot more simple than it is, but you know, two people who have the same single leg can have drastically different pressure, pace, setups, finishes. I mean, like it's a huge variety as well. So I love training with other people. I think it's the best thing to simulate uh, competition without having to go and actually compete. Like if they're like when they were, they didn't have any competitions during the pandemic, like it was, it's good to cross train with other people too. And so if I'm with my same partner, say that because of whatever, you can't go train somewhere else. Maybe there's some professors who aren't as open to people training elsewhere. When they shut down my go-to stuff, I use that to build my series. So I start out my regular move looking, I make it look like the move that I typically want. And I use their defenses to go to the next move and go to the next move. Because I think that if you don't do that, um, I've gotten to where it's like some people shut down certain things that I do and I forget that I'm good at that. I forget that that works on everybody else yeah. and they don't know it's coming. So like 
not saying you really lose confidence, but you can like, you can just start to gravitate away from something that actually is a great move just because you so often meet people who are familiar with it and shut it down. Yeah. Yeah. There's kind of a, a familiarity thing when you're training with everyone in the same room where just they have seen your entries so many times that you can kind of get some false negatives where you think, ah, these things, these techniques don't work. But really, it is just that they don't work against particular opponents that you've done this to a hundred times already. <laughs> if you were to go and take those out to the general population, you'd be incredibly successful with them. So that's another reason why I think it's important to get diversity into your game and travel around is because otherwise you can wind up getting those false negatives and accidentally discard techniques that are totally viable, but just your training partners are so used to them that they just don't work on them anymore. Absolutely. And different people have different body types. Someone long and lanky is going to react a lot different than somebody who's like short and thicker. So you'll get to see like a wide variety of reactions, you know, and somebody might do something completely, you know, like unorthodox and it work and you'd be like, oh man, I'm going to add that. Like I never even considered, you know, stepping this way instead of that way. And wow, I, I don't see how they could stop that. So like it, I think it expands your mind and like the different ways that you can do even the same technique, the little variations. Yeah, absolutely. Now, something I want to dig into here, you've mentioned a few times so far that the single leg is one of your favorite moves. Also a move that I love for a variety of reasons. I'd like to dig into this a little bit because I think the single move, it's one of those few moves in jujitsu that I kind of think everyone should learn and integrate into their game. There's a lot of stuff in jujitsu that is kind of peripheral and you can either take it or leave it. I mean, spider guard, for example, is a good example. A lot of people love spider guard, but you know what? If you don't like spider guard, you don't really need to focus on it. There's other stuff you can do that's just as effective. Whereas the single leg is one of those moves that I feel is just so versatile that everybody should train it. I'd love to get your explanation of of the single leg in terms of why you like it and why you gravitate towards it over other options. Just let me know. I'm just curious to know what it is about the single leg that you enjoy so much. So what I like about the single leg is it's not necessarily as much of a power move. Like when you shoot a double leg, you are shooting into somebody's most powerful weapon, like their hips. And so that's something that if you are like very evenly matched, so you're in your weight class, you're in your age division and everything like that, like that's, it's a really great move. But say you do open class, say you train against guys, say, I mean, like when you make it slightly uneven, a double leg can be like running into a brick wall. But if it's my whole body attacking your one leg and I'm disrupting your balance, I feel like you have more of an advantage even when it's not an even playing field. I also feel like where people do high crotch, double leg, duck under, things like that, there's just, you have less time that you're really exposing your neck because you know attacking the neck is a great counter to takedowns so there's just much less it's not quite as open it's not quite as easy to do that and a lot of times if you are attacking the neck and they're finishing the shot you're going to get taken down before you can really solidify it so i think that's why i like it but also really i just happen to be better at single legs in wrestling and so so sometimes you just do a move and you really like, I actually like the high crotch better. I didn't really gravitate towards double legs a lot, but it turned out my single leg, I just, I naturally was better at it. So you have to kind of look at those things, like whether it's your favorite or not, and like, look at those as little gifts athletically, and you got to put your, you know, invest your time and energy into it. So that's why I like it a little bit better. And I think that when I'm going against people in jujitsu, Either the moment I lift them off the ground, say in a double leg, or the, I get their leg up really high, they don't have the same years of experience as wrestlers do of having to fight while you're balancing. And so I find that the finishes are easier. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. In jiu-jitsu, especially when you shoot for a double, I mean, <laughs> the general experience in jiu-jitsu is most of the time, people will just try to get it to the floor as soon as possible, right? They're not necessarily interested in a long stand-up game. And a big part of that is just the point scoring system under the IBJJF rules. There really is no compelling reason why you would want to go for takedowns in jiu-jitsu versus going for a guard pull in the sweep, simply because the points are roughly the same. So, 
you get a lot of people who, like you said earlier, are kind of aggressive butt scooters. And that means that if you want to have a takedown that's effective, you got to be able to get into it fast. You got to be able to get into it quickly. And you've got to be able to do it in a way that you can you can effectively execute before the person puts their butt on the floor. And I personally find that single legs are just a lot easier to enter into. My experience, especially in the gi, no gi and wrestling are a bit different because there's nothing to latch onto. But the problem with the gi is because it's so sticky, if the person gets like a good collar grip on you, it's really hard to get a double because their hand is glued to your chest and it's basically a frame at that point. And it's just, unless you can clear both of their hands out of the way, it's really hard to go in for a double. And in the gi, it's really hard to clear their hands out of the way because they're grabbing onto your freaking pajamas, right? So I find that for that reason, I have personally, and bear in mind, I, I am I am anything but a seasoned stand-up expert. I have found that the double leg never translated very well to me in, in the gi, simply because getting in close close enough is so hard when your opponent can just latch onto the gi. It, like they'll just get that collar grip. And I've just never had a good time being able to clear that and go in for the double. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Certainly easier in no gi. But I think in competition too, there's two reasons that I've seen so far that people don't select wrestling as the option. One, it's exhausting. So you have it to sure do is. it. <laughs> it really is. No, no. Like as a wrestler, we wrestle six minutes and that's it. Six minutes, because anything longer than that, and it's going to get ugly for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> but it's something that unless you train it all the time, you know, like you're going to be emptying your own tank a little bit only because you have to do it a lot to become efficient at it. Like wrestling can be easier than what it feels like initially, because at first you're not as good at it. So you use needless energy. You're tight when you don't need to be tight. You're you're defending when you don't need to be defending. You grab you grab a hold like a two on one or whatever and you're squeezing it tighter than you know maybe it only needs 50%, but you give it you're grabbing it a hundred percent, you know? And so eventually you learn, you kind of calibrate to how much you need to finish a takedown to get to that shot, whatever. And so you're conserving your energy as far as that is that goes. And you're not quite as nervous. The more familiar you get with it, you're not as nervous as someone shooting on you. So you're not unnecessarily tense. But I also think that people box themselves in. So I run some of the wrestling practices here for our adult. Like I jump in on our no-gi classes and I'll show wrestling. And I always get so many complaints. They're like, oh, the wrestling warm-up is too long. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> I'm helping you. Like, you need to be very warm before people are sprawling on your shoulders and stuffing your head. And like, before you explode into another person's body, like you can, like, you'll get injured if you're not like almost pouring, like a sweat has to be dripping. So I'm, I've done wrestling for really long. And when I come in doing it cold, it's bad news for everyone. But then also... At the end of the practice, inevitably, even the biggest complainers, the biggest guard pullers, they're like, that was so much fun. That was so much better than I thought. And I was like, yes, because it turns out one, all jujitsu people, you know, a lot more wrestling than you realize you are better. Like it's a grappling art. You're better than you think because you, a lot of the things that make you good in jujitsu, balance, awareness, explosiveness, uh, using your entire body, uh, things like that, like strength, conditioning, like you guys have that already. So it's not as unfamiliar as you think. But then also you're not wrestling all the time. You're not wrestling world medalists. You're wrestling other jujitsu people who probably like some of them, if they don't choose to stand up, they're even less experienced than you. So you have reason to have a little more confidence against them because you're not going against me. You're going against each other, you know? So like, I think that that's like, you know, it's a good incentive to start trying your takedowns, especially the earlier belts. And yeah, for me personally, I don't like to have any holes in my game. I like in every area to have at least one threat. So even if someone hated spider guard, like we were talking about before, I'm like, just pick one thing you like in the spider guard. Even if that is a fake something to transition to the game you really like. Just have something from Spider Guard. If you end up there in the situation, you're not like stuck. You have yeah. something that you can do, even if it's a transition, you know, figure that out. So 
Yeah, I agree completely. I, I mean, you don't have to be good at everything, but you do at least have to have an answer for everything. Yeah. So if you wind up in that situation where, okay, I don't want to play Spider Guard, but yet here we are, you need to at least know how to transition into the game you want to play rather than just being stuck there like a deer in the headlights. And I think that's a good point about some of the natural crossovers about grappling. There is a lot of stuff just about the way the body alignment works and body mechanics work. I mean, that doesn't change dramatically from jujitsu to wrestling i think really the big thing that does change is sort of the cultural desire to just get up on your feet and control the pace i mean jujitsu was marketed as you know an art for the little guy to slowly but surely beat the big guy without having to rely on athleticism or explosiveness and that actually works in practice, which is cool, but it does result in a martial art where you can actually get by a lot of the time by just being very passive and slow. And sometimes I think people forget that, yeah, you can actually go on the offense. You know, you don't have to just seed the, the bottom position every single time. You can fight for the top. And I mean, I certainly agree that wrestling, at least to me, it feels pretty darn tiring <laughs> compared to jujitsu because I'm so much more used to being on the ground. But like you said, a lot of that is just experience. I mean, I remember when I started jujitsu, you know, after like a two minute roll, I'd be just gassed out because it, you were burning all of your energy. But now once you get to, you know, purple belt or higher, you're experienced enough that you can go for a pretty long time because you know how to be efficient at it. And I presume you encounter a similar thing with wrestling where a lot of it is just economy of motion and learning how to be efficient in your movements. And in jujitsu, just most people often don't train that because they're so focused on just getting to the floor. Yeah, absolutely. And being underneath someone, regardless of how great your attacks are, by nature, being underneath, carrying their weight, having gravity like against you, it is like the top position is a more dominant position by that nature. But if you can carry someone's weight, you have that kind of like sustained energy and efficiency, like you, you'll, you're definitely able to stay in a stance longer. You're definitely able to keep that good stance. So I think that it, the conditioning harder for like going is harder for learning to do well in the guard and like carrying people than it is for me to do wrestling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're on the bottom. I mean, I mean, learning to play the guard effectively, I think we forget as people who have trained a while, how hard it is because you are fighting at a gravitational disadvantage, right? You're not on your feet. You're on your ass. Your shoulders are may or may not be glued to the mat as well. You know, you're, you're sitting there on the bottom. You're carrying someone who could be a lot bigger than you. Your movement is heavily restricted. It's actually really hard to learn to fight out of the guard. You would be much better off winning from a stand-up and then taking the top position from there. So I think a lot of it is just cultural experience in terms of how we train. You know, we, we do what we we're used to. And in the jujitsu world, you can, because the rules allow you to basically skip the, the takedown phase of the fight, <laughs> if you want to, then people just don't feel inclined to, to play it. What I'd love to do while I got you here, I'd love to dig into the single leg specifically. How do you do it when you set up the single leg? Like what does your single leg game look like? And do you have to adapt that when you go into the gi, no gi, or is your game more or less the same regardless of the rule set? So. No, no, my, my game is definitely different, you know, depending on the rule set. Cause like an MMA, when people can hit you in the face, it's, and your, <laughs> your stance is more upright. It's definitely different, but not once I actually get to the leg. So what is really different is how I get into the single leg. And so with Nogi, I can do it's a virtually the same as my wrestling. So I can have a variety of different ties. I never get really gummed up in any type of tie. So. Because I like the single leg, I can do it from pulling them down to like from a front headlock. I can do it from an underhook. I can do it from a two on one. I can do it. I can drag to a single. Like I'm more of a reactive type of wrestler. So if you come out and you have like one certain stance and one certain place that you like to be, I'm more likely instead of, instead of battling you for my favorite ties, I will use your ties to get where I want, if that makes right. sense. So if you collar tie me, I'm not going to fight to get my underhook. I'm going to take my two on one. If you pull me down, like I'm going to attack you. I mean, I'm just going to use where we end up and I'm always going to end up in my single leg. It could be either leg. I like single legs to both legs. But when it comes to the gi, I think I'm much more adamant about getting 
my position and my ties right. Because like you said, it, and it's even true with single legs too, is that if they establish a really good grip, they can keep you more at a distance. So I think that when I do single legs in the gi, I fight to get that initial tie right away a lot harder than I would in no gi and in wrestling. Yeah. And when it yeah. comes to fighting, you can't do wrestling like you do in any of the grappling sports as much because of the punches. So for me, I, I slip punches to get into where I want. So I'm not really, sometimes I'll throw, get them to shell up, you know, and where they put their hands protecting their head and I'll get into my single leg because if they don't protect their head, I'm going to just keep hitting them. So they, right, have, they right. have to do something. So you force their hands up with the threat of a punch and then you go low for the single leg afterwards. Yeah, because they can only run for so long. Yeah, eventually they're going to either run into a cage or they're going to lose the fight running from me. So they know that they have to engage whether or not there's a referee telling them that they have to engage or not. If they run the whole fight, I don't get a single leg, but I win by virtue of them not engaging. Right. So, but my favorite way, which is scary as hell, but it's to force them to throw. And once I slip their punches, I can get any of my takedowns. All I have to do is connect my shoulder to their body. Once my shoulder's connected, I can go completely on autopilot and finish like I would in any jiu-jitsu match because there's no longer a threat of any strikes. You know, it's funny you bring this up because I remember, I mean, of course, as a Canadian, I am legally obligated to watch every single George St. Pierre match that has ever been. So I remember watching a GSP fight. I don't remember which one it was, but I could hear, I think it was Greg Jackson in GSP's corner and he kept shouting, react, react. And, and he was, he was trying to encourage GSP, if I understand correctly, to basically react to what his opponent was doing and transition right into going on to the attack. And I thought that was such an, an interesting and different way of thinking of this, because when you hear most jujitsu instructors talk, they're always talking about being proactive and dictating the pace and never letting your opponent even do anything, right? You always want to be proactive, control the tempo, yada, yada, yada. Whereas it was interesting to hear him say basically what you're saying, which is you actually let your opponent do something and then you react to that and immediately use that as an entry into something else. It's a very different way of thinking about how to fight. And I think, I don't know where that comes from, but I feel like a big part of it is because so much of jujitsu is not doing anything. You're trying to take away your opponent's options so that they cannot do anything. You know, you're trying to pin them, hold them and prevent movement. Whereas in the stand-up arts, there is this aspect of movement and timing and momentum. And those things are much more important on the feet than they are on the floor. And I just find it very interesting to hear high level people talk about how actually they often like to react to their opponent and wait for their opponent to, to make a move. And then they use that as the trigger into their game. It's just, like you said, it sounds scary, but I, you're not the only person I've heard do this before. Yeah, I think the, my favorite time to do this, which most people, don't get me wrong, I will be the first to admit right now, I absolutely love controlling someone. If I could win 100 points to zero, I would do that every single time. <laughs> I don't like it, you know, but I will say this, like when I was in wrestling, I still would do this. And I would say, I earned the first three points. We had like a 10 point tech fall. And they give me the other seven. So once I get up by three points, my opponent, they are going to lose. They're going to lose by points and they have to start opening up. So I have put the initial points on the board. And now I know, I know that they are going to come after me. So I am waiting to exploit their holes because I, I trust that I put so much into defending stuff, you know, that that I'm going to find the holes in their offensive game because it is so much easier, I think, to have good defense than it is to have good offense. And I'll explain why I think that is. So if there is a chain of sequence of events, right? If I'm going to defend it, I only have to stop you at one point along the chain. I don't have to, I can stop you early in the chain. I can stop you midway in the chain. You know, I can find your error somewhere. But in order to execute my offense, I have to hit everything in the chain correctly. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, so I trust, I'm like, okay, I earned these points and now you have to come after me, you know, unless you're just going to lose, you know, but most people, if you're good competitors, 
there's no honor in losing by two points, but never having tried to win it. You know, I'd rather mm-hmm. lose by eight points, but really have put it out there and tried to go than lose by two and have just sat there and waited the clock out. So once they start to really like come after me, that's when I look for the holes in their game. That's when you can really open it up. But it is, it's kind of scary because you're like, I already, I have this in the bag, you know, and I, you're tempted to just kind of shut down and shut everything down. But you can really like, you can run the score up. You can find submissions, you know, like they have to open up. And that's where you have a lot of opportunities. You know, that's one of the, probably strongest arguments I've heard for working on your stand-up in jiu-jitsu. People will often say when you bring up the point that people in jiu-jitsu, you know, I've heard people come on the podcast before and they've said, there's no point in learning takedowns for jiu-jitsu because a takedown is two points, but a guard sweep is two points. So you might as well pull guard. And on its face, that kind of makes sense, I guess. But what you're saying also makes a hell of a lot of sense, which is, look, if you can open the fight with an opening salvo that immediately puts your opponent at a point disadvantage and if your defense is then therefore good enough from that point onward that you can deny any point scoring against you then your opponent must react you're now in a position of power where you're forcing your opponent to do stuff and to take chances that they might otherwise not want to take because they're down on points and while they're going for their sweep you might pass their guard because that's what you're aiming for so you're not, I'm not saying get a takedown and kind of rest on it. You know, like I'm saying get a takedown. And then while they're frantically trying to score those points back, you are taking any gap that you can. You're getting any grip that you can. All you have to do is stop that sweep at one point and you can start knee cutting. You can, you know, you have the top position. You can move side to side a lot easier. I mean, so yeah, absolutely. Hey, I got a question for you here while we're talking about single legs. What are your thoughts on the low single? I predominantly do a lot of low singles. And the reason why I do them is because I feel that just because we train jujitsu, I'm usually on my ass anyway. (laughs) And if you're already on the ground, it's very easy to transition through to like butterfly guard and then right into a low single if you can get the person's leg. What are your thoughts on the practicality of low singles? Because I don't see them that often in MMA. So. The reason you don't see them as much in MMA is because it's it's a real risk to tra- change your level that drastically. So if you already have a low stance or like you said, you're coming from butterfly, you can mask that level change you know, a lot better. So one of the things about wrestling and why we have so many setups and why we chain them together is that you have to mask loading your legs up for your shot. Otherwise, you telegraph your shot. So if I telegraph my shot in in MMA, they're just going to back up. The, the spacing is already further than grappling distance. And so if I, if I lower my level all the way for a low single, it's just going to be gone. So it, it's just not quite as practical. But if we were in a position where, you know, they couldn't back up because of the cage or I was coming up from the ground and I went on it, like it would be more possible. There's only a couple things that I... I make sure that I finish very, very quickly because if it's the low single where you put the knee or your head right in their knee and you kind of tip them, mm-hmm. the only thing you really have to watch out for is the no arm guillotine because your neck is exposed yes. very briefly, you know? So if you finish really quickly and you kind of retract your head and you don't get triangled too, like there are attacks that they, you leave yourself vulnerable to. So you, you need to close that window of attack like as quickly as possible and then if you also shoot your head through so where your head is kind of almost even behind their leg a little bit they can do reverse triangles they can lock their legs so but if you tuck your arm in there's but you just have to finish fast i think that if you have a good single leg like a traditional single leg you you can take a little bit more time finishing it if you get the leg up really high but some of them it's like the same thing as a double leg you can't just hang around in a double leg. You're going to get choked. You can't hang around in a low single. Like it's something that you have to strike. And if you find that you're not, if it's not working out, get out of dodge. Don't, don't hang out in there because they're immediately going to be, you know, exploiting any opportunity they can. 
Yeah, I have definitely had that happen to me where I, I shot a low single with my head on the inside and I got reverse triangled. I yes. remember at the time not even knowing that was an option, but that that very much changed the way that that I shot for that takedown. And I think you're right that that might be a, a takedown that is very specifically suited to the jujitsu rule set where you're kind of likely to be in a position where that would make sense anyway. With a traditional single where you kind of have the person's foot up off of the floor, you're attacking their base so much more that you can you can do all the fun things like make them hop around and look like an idiot. Whereas sometimes if you're already on the ground, I find that if you already have their foot and the low single is there, I often go for that rather than trying to get up to my feet. But a lot of that just comes down to the jujitsu rule set, right? And the fact that you're likely to be in a position where something like that would be applicable anyway. So on the MMA front, I mean, I would love to dig into this a little bit deeper because you talked about the the MMA posture, which is one of the things that I think is most likely to change when you introduce strikes in the face. The traditional jujitsu posture where you're kind of leaning forward, man, if strikes were allowed, you would get socked in the face right away, <laughs> right? So yeah, your own punches would be like less effective. Like the kickboxing yes. and boxing stance is like where you ha- generate the most power with your shoulders. So it's in a stance, you know, you'd be punching upward and it would just be basically more of an arm punch than anything else. Yeah. So I think that's part of the reason why jujitsu people often get disenfranchised with takedowns is because unlike MMA or even judo, you're not likely to fight an opponent who is postured upright when they're standing. They're more likely to be crouched down. And by doing that, they're putting the top of their body, their torso and their head so far in front of them that it's really hard to get to their legs. Yeah. And so I, I explain that to people, uh, especially when I'm coaching, I'm like, the stance, it's the best place where you can execute offense, but it's the best defensive position, like putting things in the way for people to get to your legs. Like, so having good stances, but is throughout the history of the world, this is what it has evolved to. And, you know, the fundamentals are the things that stay when all the tricks and gimmicks and, you know, junk moves are filtered out and the stance remains because yeah. With offense and defense, it's just the most technically sound. So I think, and this is my theory, the part of the reason why people kind of don't train takedowns as much as they can is because they'll want to, and they'll start off standing up with their opponent, and you'll get two white belts who are both leaning forward in that jujitsu posture, and, and neither of them can get access to the other person's legs. And then eventually someone says, ah, screw it, and they just sit down. And you do that enough times, and that kind of becomes a habit over time. What do you suggest to a new person or even maybe an experienced person who just has weak takedowns? What do you suggest as some pointers in terms of how they can deal with that posture and get through to the legs so that they can actually even enter into the single leg game? Well, first, I think that they need to address their attitude because when you're trying triangles and you're trying arm bars and you're trying kimuras, like you fail a lot of times, you know, like it's extremely difficult and they don't, they don't look at that and give up quite as quickly. So I think that like allowing people permission to like give up is the first thing that you need to address. I think that that will make a big difference in your takedowns. Just deciding, no, I'm going to get this takedown. And some of it is like in wrestling, there is a lot of technique, but a lot of it is also imposing your will. Like you have to want something and will it enough, but it's the same thing in jujitsu. Like if you, if you're like, oh, I tried to pass their guard, but oh, their guard's too hard to pass. I'm going to drop on an ankle lock. You know, like it's like, you're never going to learn guard passing, but it's something kind of important, you know? So anyone that doesn't stick with it, you know, it's to your disadvantage to not learn how to pass guard and just drop back to like an easier solution. And then another thing too is, I think that it starts from the top down. And that is if your professor, I've been to plenty of jujitsu places where I've struggled to get takedowns because the professor there says, no, today we're starting on our feet. So he or she, they make their students stick with that. They don't allow them, you know, to, to always pull guard. They say, oh no, today we're doing this. And that's just the way it goes. They don't even, that, that whole gym doesn't even know any different. So wrestling is a part of their grappling art. And I think if more professors, I understand too, there's sometimes space constraints. So what I do when that happens is I'll do group of three 
and two people are in and one person is watching to make sure nobody runs into anybody else. Or you can do winner stays in a group of four. So even if you have less space, you can still work on the feet. And then whoever's the best wrestler, fresh people are like working in on them. They, they stay in maybe five, seven rotations and they get to rotate out one, you know? So there are ways to do it that you can encourage your students to do it or just that's the class for the day and don't skip that class because, you know, I always surprise them. Uh, Farah, <laughs> Farah Sahabi gave me some really good advice. Like he said he had a wrestling class, even at TriStar, one of the best gyms and they have good grappling there. And he's like, they had a wrestling class and nobody was showing up, but he changed the name to a grappling class and they would do stand up grapplings, you know, some of the days. And he's like, sometimes you got to mix the medicine in with the mashed potatoes. <laughs> so, but his attitude reflected into his students and those students, whether they like it or not, some days they showed up, they're going to show up and do wrestling that day. And they just get better by being like herded like little cattle to be, to do better. But if I had to give like specific advice, the most specific advice that I could give to somebody who wants to get better at their takedowns, do not get your hands to the legs, get your shoulder to the body and your arms as deep as possible. Because a lot of times people I think that one of the biggest constraints to like even learning takedowns is people get too shallow and that's easy to defend. So they think like, oh, I'm going to shoot in, but I want to have the capability of backing out in case I need to back out. And what they need to do is treat takedowns like a backflip or like a box jump. You cannot stop midway. The only way really out is to go through. So shoot as hard as you can, shoot as deep as you can, and Deal with it once you get there, you know, like, yeah, but don't like half commit because then you actually are like making it a lot worse on yourself. You're giving them more opportunity to counterattack you than if you had never shot at all. So shoot deep and connect your shoulder as hard as you can. Like if you can make them start to lose their lunch a little bit, that is a good deep shot. Yeah. You know, when you bring that up, I remember the exact moment that my coach gave me that exact advice and it was a total game changer for me. I realized two things. First of all, when I was shooting for a single or a double for that matter, I was reaching out and intuitively that's how we think a single or double should work is you reach out and you grab the person's leg, but that's not what it is. It's not about putting your hand on the person's leg. It's about connecting your shoulder to them. If you're just touching the person's leg, that's probably not going to be strong enough to actually get a takedown and you're certainly too far away. And this is something that's almost universal to all combat sports is you need to train yourself to have your body and your elbows kind of glued together. You never want to have your arms sticking so far out that you're kind of reaching and grabbing. In almost every combat sport, if your arms are dangling out there, it's a bad sign because you're not being mechanically strong. Any, any extension is a loss of power. Everything closer to your body is more powerful, for sure. Yeah, I was talking to Preet Mikkelsen from Estonia, and he he brought up a good point, which is that, look, when you're boxing or striking, we teach people that there's kind of a default posture that you have to do, right? You want your chins down, your hands up, you want your elbows in. And whenever you deviate from that, like you're throwing a punch, your goal is to do that only when you can do that without exposing yourself. And then your goal is to immediately bring things back into defensive mode. Your default should be, I have a good, strong defensive posture. And we often don't really teach people an equivalent in jujitsu, but the same sort of applies where you rarely ever want to have your arms and legs extended unless you have a real good reason for doing it and you can do it safely. And so by default, you kind of need to have the equivalent of like a boxer's posture where you just retract everything in and your default is you're tight, you're coiled, you're safe, you're ready to explode. If you got a lot of arms and legs dangling out there, usually that's an indication that you're probably not being maximally powerful and you're probably leaving pretty significant openings for your opponent to exploit. Yes, absolutely. I 100% agree. Awesome. Well, I guess we can tie this up, Sarah, but before we do, is there anything else, any other big lessons that you think everyone needs to know about when they're talking about, hey, I'm a, I'm a jujitero and I want to learn how to be a better wrestler and apply that into my game? Any big final takeaways we want to share? I wish people would realize you're already better at wrestling than you give yourself credit for. So just stop thinking like, oh, I'm not really a wrestler. Like imagine how limited my striking would be if I always was like, well, I'm more of a wrestler and a grappler. I'm not really a striker. Immediately, 
making it to where like I have much less of a chance of becoming a good striker because of my own mental attitude. But I just want to tell you, stand up. You already are. You already are. Just don't like, don't let your mind be your own limitation. And yeah, even great wrestlers get taken down. Watch the world championships. We get taken down. We get thrown. We get pinned. It doesn't mean you're bad at it. It means the other person got a good move that day and you get to get back up and try it again. Awesome. Fantastic, Sarah. Well, I thank you so much for dropping by and sharing all of this with us. If people want to follow you, check out your work, how do they go about doing that? On Instagram, my handle is just at Sarah McMahon. I don't know what it is. I have like a Facebook page too. It's just Basically, post the same thing on Instagram, though. You know what? It's funny. Every single combat athlete I talk to is in the exact same boat where Instagram always, Facebook sometimes, Twitter never. Just for some reason, combat athletes live and die on Instagram. It's just an interesting thing that I've noticed. I think it's so Twitter. I don't like the negativity, even when it's not directed at me. I just, if I walked into a room and 80% of the people were being super rude and negative, I would probably leave. And so that's, I just gravitate away from it. I never like had some stand where I'm like, I'm not getting on Twitter. I just don't enjoy it. So I don't end up going there very much. And I know that probably as a pro athlete, I shouldn't do that, but I'm like, eh, I'll just fight. And I just (laughs) won't have as strong of a following. Facebook, I pretty much use to keep up with my friends and family. I don't use it for any other reason except to be like, hey, here are my kids. They're growing (laughs) up now, you know? Like I use it like old people use it because yeah, it makes me happy. And Instagram is more like, okay, like I'm gonna share something here, share a training thing or do something fun. That's more as close as I would come to having some type of, you know, business output. But I'm not even great (laughs) at that. I don't care. I know it's terrible, but... I don't. So I'll just fight. I'm not an influencer. So man, I I can relate. I was never really a social media person until we did this podcast, because you kind of have to have a a social platform and following and place where you can post stuff. And so for the first time in my life, I really started getting into using social media. And I agree. It is just a it's an unnecessarily negative experience. I think that a lot of why social media can be so damaging is just because people are so inclined to be negative on social media in a way that I just don't think they realistically would in person. And it- No, absolutely not. They Some people say totally unrealistic things about my friends, my teammates, me, yeah. just because they want your attention. And, and so, I don't know. I think that it, you're right. They would never say those things to your face. And they Honestly, I don't think people even feel the things that they say. They're just writing it because they want a reaction. Because if they say, hey, good job, they're probably not going to get any kind of reaction. Yeah, like they might have a feeling in the moment or an idea in the moment, and they don't think they need to bother filtering it or making it sound civil. And what they don't realize is they're injecting a bit of negativity into someone else's day that can ruin their whole day, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, social media is is an interesting thing. It's it's important, but it's also like like anything, it needs to be handled in moderation because it's pretty easy to let it take over your life. One trick if you are getting into this and you are expanding your social media that I do is whenever someone writes a comment, I take away the you and I I fill in an I. So like someone I'll I even like want to fight, you know, people are like congratulations blah blah, blah and someone's like you are trash. And I, and I just, I deleted the you and I put an I and it says like, I am trash. I put it in the personal. And I was like, cause anybody who would write that, that's, it's coming from them. They are the source of that. I am just some person doing my job, you know? So like I switch it and make it whatever they're saying, they're projecting onto you. And so psychologically it helps out. Yeah. Well, I do thank you for coming by. And of course, everyone, please follow Sarah on Instagram. And of course, if you want to support us, I think everyone knows how to find our stuff. If you go to bjjmentalmodels.com, there's a full list of every podcast episode we've ever made. You can get on our mailing list, even a full database of concepts for jujitsu that is super helpful. And of course, if you want to dig deeper, you can check out BJJ Mental Models Premium. That's our premium offering. There, we provide direct coaching. There's also a ton of in-depth, long-form audio series with uh, guests who are frankly much smarter than me. You can get that at premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. Again, there's a free trial, so please do check it out. It really helps us out. premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. 
Sarah, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate having you come by here. And man, I'm inspired. I think I'm going to go and have to do some takedowns on some blue belts. I appreciate it. And I hope you do. (laughs) Well, thank you again. And of course, to everyone who listens, thank you for your time as well. And we'll talk to you next week.